Well, let's pray and ask God to meet us in the word this morning. Thank you, Lord, for the shield of faith, which when we, when we lift it up, will extinguish every flaming dart of the evil one. Thank you for the helmet of salvation. Thank you for the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Lord, I pray that through your word now, we would be better equipped as a church, that the shield of faith would be wielded, that the helmet would be put on, that the sword would be pulled out of its scabbard more regularly, and that we would be able to head into into battle with with love and with words and with tears and with serving, and that you would do a powerful work. So come, use your word now, I pray. Help me. Give me wisdom, Lord, and give me the right heart and open all of our hearts to what you want to say. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Jesus uh, gave us a new commandment in John chapter 13. And the new commandment is, uh, is love one another as I have loved you. So think for a moment about how Jesus loves us, loved us. He was fully God. Came down from heaven, down, 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 down to planet earth. Born as a baby. Fully God, born as a baby. And then grew up to die on the cross because he loves us, because he cares for us, because he wanted to save us. And Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Wow. But that's not easy, is it? Maybe uh, this last week your wife had had a hard day and needed to talk, but uh, the sharks were on, right? Or maybe it's home group night and you're just whipped. Or maybe this afternoon somebody texts you that they got a flat, not this afternoon, maybe let's say this late tonight, late tonight, somebody texts you they got a flat tire and need a ride and uh, you just kind of want to pretend you didn't get your texts, right? Okay, so it's not easy. Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. And it's not easy. So what can we do when we struggle to love each other? What can we do? In this next passage in the book of Hebrews, he tells us what we can do. So encouraging, so powerful. So let's turn to Hebrews chapter 6, verses 9 through 12 is the section we're taking this morning. If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. We, we want everybody to have a Bible that you can look on with. So if you don't have one, raise your hand. We'll bring one to you. And Hebrews 6, verses 9 through 12 is on page 1003 in these Bibles that we're passing out. Go ahead and turn there. Hebrews way back to the right in your Bibles. Now this morning we're going to focus on verses 9 through 12, but to understand these verses, I want to remind you what he's just said in the previous section, like in verses 1 through 8. Here's what's been going on. Many of them, many of his readers, the author's readers, have been drifting from the faith. They'd stopped clinging to God's word. Some were on the brink of falling away from the faith entirely. And so he gives them a very sobering warning in verses 1 through 8. He says, it's possible for for churchgoers 
to fall away so much that they will never repent. It's possible for for churchgoers to so dishonor Christ by their willful disobedience against Him that God will never enable them to repent, which means they were never saved to begin with, and it means they're going to face God's judgment. So he's just given them a very sobering warning, which would have just sent chills up and down their spines as they're reading verses 1 through 8. But then in verse 9, he says something very encouraging. His tone changes. He says something actually that's surprising. Look what he says in verse 9. Though we speak in this way, namely warning about what could happen to those who are drifting and are on the brink of falling away, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that accompany or things that belong to salvation. So he's just given this long warning about what can happen to people who fall away, but he says, but in your case, we're convinced of better things about you. And so I want to start off by digging into that. What are the better things that the author is sure of about them? What, what better things? What, what's he sure of about them? And as I thought about it, he has just said that there are people who fall away so far that they will never repent, people who, who sin so willfully that God lifts his hand from them. They, he will never enable them to repent. So what the author must be saying when he says, we're convinced of better things concerning you, is that God will not do that in your case. In your case, God will continue to enable you to repent. We're convinced of better things concerning you. God will enable you to repent. And here's why this is so huge. I hope you understand that we can't, won't repent on our own volition if God just leaves us to ourselves because of our sinfulness. We just will keep turning our backs on living water. We're thirsty people. We'll just keep turning our backs on living water and trying to pursue little little water jars that are bone dry, that are cracked. To try to, we, we will not turn back to him left to ourselves. Just what Jim said this morning, right? He found you. He found you. Spoke through Tina. Found you. And unless God brings his power upon us, we will not repent. So this last week, like if you were driving and you totally blew up at the driver in front of you for whatever whatever reason and then all of a sudden it's like what am i doing and you're and you're convicted i'm not trusting god's promises he's sovereign and i'm not i'm not as proud as i think i mean i'm not as great as i think i am to be able to call out people who drive and you just you get a sense of your unbelief and your pride and and god brings you to repentance the reason that happened was because god brought his power upon you this last week and he moved you to repentance We can only repent if God works in our hearts. And so, when the author warns that there are people who fall away so far that they will never be enabled to repent, that God lifts his hand off of them, they they will never be able, willing to repent. So sobering, because that means that it will never happen. But that's why verse 9 is so encouraging. Because the author says... I'm convinced of better things about you. Which means he's convinced that God will continue to enable you, my readers, you beloved ones, he says in verse 9. He calls them beloved. I love you. You're beloved. I'm convinced God is going to keep enabling you to repent. This warning I've just laid out says not going to be true for you. 
God's going to keep you repenting. You'll be saved. Now, my next question was, why does he say that? How does he know? On what basis would he say that? If there are somewhere that could happen to them, why not these people? How can he know God will enable his, re- excuse me, his readers to repent? Now notice that word for at the beginning of verse 10. Translate that because. That, that's the reason for verse 9. The reason in verse 9 he is sure that God will enable him to repent is because, or for, verse 10, is because God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Now there's kind of two steps in verse 10 in his, in his argument here. The first step is, he says, in the past you have lived in such a way that shows clearly that God has saved you. That's step one in his arguments. And he's talking about how they served the saints. Now we've, we've talked about a couple times in chapter 10, a very powerful illustration that he uses. Remember, uh, in chapter 10 he says that in their past, when they first became saved, some of their members were arrested for being Christians, thrown in jail. And in that culture, if somebody was thrown in jail, they would only eat if somebody from the outside brought them food. Okay? So let's say Sean Rafferty is arrested for being a believer, and he is thrown in jail. He's part of our body here. So he was like, he's arrested this afternoon, thrown in jail. That would mean that unless somebody picks up in and out and heads down to the county jail, he's not going to be eating tonight. But if he's arrested for being a Christian, and, and we take food down there, we're identifying ourselves as Christians, so we might end up with him in jail. Or have our jobs be lost, or our possessions taken, or our lives lost. This was the kind of thing they were risking back then in those days. And what did these believers do? These, these re- the readers of this letter, what did they do in their early years? They took food. They visited their brothers and sisters. And they rejoiced at the honor of serving brothers and sisters for Christ's sake, even though they had their property stolen and terrible persecution came because they identified with the believers. So he's reminding them. In the past, you lived in a way that showed that God had saved you. And and I hope you understand, this is not just kind of ordinary compassion. This is not just like random acts of kindness. To take food to a fellow believer in jail and risk your job, possessions, life, that's a whole other level of serving. That's a whole other level of devotion. Serving the brothers and sisters in that way And the author says it was powered by what in verse 10? What empowered that service? It was love for God's name. Do you see that there in verse 10? God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints. They loved God's name. And that love for God's name moved them to serve the saints. Okay, now let's just try to think through how this might work. Let's say that Sean gets arrested this afternoon. He's down in the county jail. Love for God's name will enable you to take him food tonight and risk it all. Okay, how does that work? Two ways. Love for God's name. First of all, love for God's name. The name of God stands for who he is. It means you see who God is and you love him. You see his faithfulness. You see his power. You see his wisdom. 
His holiness, His righteousness, His justice, His mercy, His love, His goodness. You see who God is and you love Him. And when you love God, loving God so fills your heart that you are free. You need nothing else because He is filling your heart and you know that He is in sovereign control of everything else that happens in your life to bring you even more of that joy of knowing Him. So you're freed. You can say with Martin Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress, let goods and kindred go. Let them go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. You can sing that song in media because you see God. I have God. So the first step is your heart is filled with love for God, so you need nothing else, and then that love for God fuels you on the path of obedience because he promises when you obey me, I'm going to give you even more joy in knowing me. So loving God fills you and fuels you so you say come on let's let's all go down let's all go in and out pick up some double doubles let's all go down and take care of sean together gang right love for god's name transforms our hearts so we serve each other in that kind of a radical risky sacrificial way that's what happened in them and that showed that god had saved them Because no one loves God's name like that unless God brings his supernatural power upon you and takes out your heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh. Only saved, born again people love God's name like that. And so the point the author's making is remember that for the sake of God's name, your love for God's name moved you to radical, risky, sacrificial love for each other's. That shows you were saved. God saved you. You're not just churchgoers. God saved you. That's the first step in the argument in verse 10. Second step is God would be unjust if he overlooked your love for his name. What does that mean? God's promised, first of all, their love for God's name shows that they've been saved. And God has promised that everyone he saves, he will keep them repenting all the way to the end. Hebrews 13, uh, verse 21, says that God will keep working in us what is pleasing in his sight. That includes repentance. That Every day, God's going to keep working in our hearts that which is pleasing in His sight. doesn't mean we become perfect. There's ups and there's downs, but He'll keep us coming back to Him. Keep us coming back and growing in Him. Philippians 1.6 says that the good work that God started in us, He started the good work, and that good work that He started, He will continue until the day of Christ Jesus. He will keep us repenting all the way to the end. Jeremiah 32.40 says that when God saves us, He puts the fear of him in our hearts so we will not turn away from him. He will keep us repenting. He will keep us in the faith. Nothing will pluck us out of his hand, John John 10. So, if you've been genuinely saved, then God promises, I will keep you repenting. I will keep you in the faith all the way to the end. You will not fall away. I will keep you coming back to me, coming back to me, coming back to me. I will keep strengthening you, keeping you all the way to the end. And so, 
since these believers had shown by their sacrificial radical love, since they'd shown by their love that they'd been saved, God would be unjust if he didn't keep them repenting because he would be untrue to his word. That's the, that's the two-step argument in chapter 10. And so that's why the author is so sure that he can speak of better things about them than the warning he has just brought in verses 1 through 8. Everyone who God saves, God will keep repenting all the way to the end. So because God has saved them, they're serving, radical, risky, sacrificial serving show for, the, for God's name shows that they've been saved. So God would be unjust if he overlooked that and lifted his hand off of them because he's promised he would never do that. So think of what a relief they would have felt at this point. Okay, reading verses 1 through 8, they would have started to sweat. Right? This is risky. I mean, that's not, you know what I mean, but people can fall away that far that they'll never repent. It's impossible to renew them to repentance. That can happen to people. Verse 9, but I'm convinced of better things concerning you. God will not let you keep going. God will keep you repenting because your radical, sacrificial, risky serving of each other shows how much you loved God's name, which only happens when God saves people, which means God's going to keep you. He has saved you. He will keep you. So the relief would have just come in verses 9 and 10. Oh, I thought, remember, anybody have bad dreams where you're remembering you had to pass this class in college? Remember that? And you're waiting for the grades to come out, and then finally, oh, it comes out. Yes! Remember? Relief. Oh, what a relief it is. Okay, so they would have felt total relief with verses 9 and 10. But now the author doesn't stop there. He's glad they feel relieved. He wants them to be encouraged. Okay, but, but it's urgent that they do something. It's very interesting. He doesn't say, so because I'm convinced God's going to keep you repenting, just like let go and let God. Like, well, what's on TV? Or, you know, just kind of chill. He doesn't say that. He wants them to do something. And he calls them to do something in verses 11 and 12. What does he call them to do? Read verse 11. By the way, I should mention that you might ask, well, then why does he give them the warning in verses 1 through 8? Was that your question, Michelle? Okay, I, I knew it. All right. Michelle always has excellent questions. And, and one of the answers is, one of the ways God keeps us repenting is through warnings like that. You've been saved, you've been born again. That means when you read verses 1 through 8, you will think, I am going to repent. And, and that was God working that in your heart. See, so God doesn't do it apart from means. He uses warnings like that. That's why the author brought the warning. And you might ask, well, why does he call them to do something if God's going to bring them to do these things? It's because God brings us to do things through his word, like verses 11 and 12. So what does he call them to do? Verse 11. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. He wants them to show the same earnestness. Same as what? Same as they had years ago. When, out of earnest love for God's name, they riskily, radically, sacrificially served each other. So verse 11 shows some of them have lost their earnestness. If I say, I want you to show the same earnestness you had back then, that would show that some of you are not showing the same earnestness you had back then. And look at how he puts it 
little different word in verse 12. He says, so that you may not be sluggish. So some of them had lost their earnest love for God, serving of each other. They become sluggish in love for God and in their serving of each other. So what does it mean to be earnest? And what does it mean to be sluggish? I, did, I thought of, of a sprinter. Think of a sprinter. Sprinter's earnest, right? Okay? Veins bulging, arms pumping, legs pounding, earnest, right? 100-yard dash, like just... I love those slow motion pictures, right? And the muscles are just rippling. Not here, but anyway, in those pictures, all right. Okay, that's earnest. So what's sluggish? That's sluggish, okay, right there. What else could I say, okay? Sleeping, yawning, snoozing, snoring, right? Complacent, lukewarm, whatever. Total opposite from somebody who's earnestly running a 100-yard dash. So earnest means passionate, full force, all or nothing, all in, moving ahead in love for God's name and serving of brothers and sisters. And sluggish means not, not that. And so some of them, when it came when it comes to love for God's name, they were sluggish. And because they were sluggish in love for God's name, they were sluggish in serving each other. And he wants them to to be to stir up that same earnestness. So that's what was happening to some of them. Is that happening to any of us? When it comes to love for God's name, any of us on the sluggish side, here's some clues that that might be the case. Has worship become more a matter of enjoying music than meeting God? When we come together, are you anticipating, I'm going to meet the living God with his people? Or is it just kind of something we do? I like that song, you know, or, or whatever. By the way, let's arrive at 945, okay? Because we don't want to miss that first song. Because we're hungry to meet the Lord. Are you more excited about watching the Super Bowl than about time with God? I'm looking forward to the Super Bowl game. Go Niners, okay? Nothing wrong with watching the Super Bowl. But are you looking forward to that more than time with the Lord? Listen, it's awesome having the 49ers in the Super Bowl. But, I mean, really? That is nothing compared to the wonder of meeting with the God of the universe. Beholding Him in the Word. Casting your cares upon Him. Oh, there's just no comparison and if in your heart you honestly are more excited about watching the Super Bowl game next Sunday than about time with God this coming week, there's something wrong. Has prayer just become like going through the motions? I've got my list. I've prayed through my list every day this last week. That, that could be really good. That could be earnest. Or it could be sluggish. Depends, right? Is it just going through the motions or is it real? Would you rather sleep in than read God's word? Anyway, you get the idea. If so, then our love for God's name has become sluggish, not earnest. And the author says, we desire you to show the same earnestness that you had. How can we tell if we've become more sluggish than earnest in terms of serving our brothers and sisters? We are passionate about obeying Jesus' commands. A new commandment I give you that you love one another 
as I have loved you. We're pursuing that in our home groups. We want to really love each other, give ourselves to each other, serve each other in radical, risky, sacrificial ways. It starts in our homes, marriages, families, home groups. So ask yourself, are you more on the sluggish side than on the earnest side? I mean, are, like, have, you, have you lost interest in what your spouse is thinking or feeling? Is it just really not interesting to you anymore? You're on the sluggish side. When someone needs a meal, do we kind of pull back? You know, um, when you when you go to home group, are you going to to be served, or are you going to serve these people? I want to, Lord, help me to encourage someone tonight. Help me to pray for someone tonight. Help me to love someone, build someone in faith tonight. That's earnest. If we're just going to be served, then it can be moving towards the, the sluggish. Um, how about helping with setup or takedown? I'm trying to think of something real, real tangible here. Whenever I tell other pastors about how we meet in the school, and they always say, "Wow, it must be tough in terms of setup and takedown." I think Jerry has got this so set up, I don't even have to think about it. But I bet you they could. Jerry, could you guys use some help? Okay, all right. So, all right. So think about helping out. But anyway, if, if you're just like, no way, hmm, maybe, maybe there's some sluggishness there. So here's the question: When it comes to love for God's name, and when it comes to earnest serving of the saints, are we are we earnest or are we are we more on the sluggish side? The author would say, be earnest in love for God's name. Be earnest in love for God's name, which will flow out then in risky, radical, sacrificial serving of your brothers and sisters. And as you do that, notice what he says at the end of verse 11, you will have the full assurance of hope until the end. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, love for God's name, service of others, to have, here's what will come, the full assurance of hope until the end. When you're earnest in loving God's name, which will flow out an earnest serving of God's people, the Holy Spirit will so pour his love into your heart that you will feel salvation affirmed and assured and confirmed in you. Your love for his name will grow even more, so you'll be even more earnest in loving his name, even more earnest in serving others. That's exactly what he means when he talks about the full assurance of hope until the end. So that will come when we show the same earnestness. So, if the author of Hebrews was up here, and if you were the group he was listening to, he would say, be earnest, not sluggish. Be earnest in loving God's name. And then you will be earnest and not sluggish in serving your brothers and sisters. So be earnest, not sluggish, in loving God's name and in serving brothers and sisters. Okay, how? What do you do to do that? How do you do that? And I notice that he answers that in verse 12. How can we become earnest and overcome sluggishness? Read 11 and 12 together so that you see what he's saying in verse 12. Start with verse 11. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. 
How do we become earnest and overcome sluggishness? By imitating those who inherit the promises through two key words, faith and patience. Faith and patience. So who is he thinking of here? I think it's probably those he refers to in chapter 11. We'll get there in a, in a little bit, a few more weeks. The, the heroes of faith, her, heroes and heroines of faith in chapter 11. So, so these men and women inherited the promises through faith and patience, and he says, imitate them. So if we're going to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises, what are we going to do? Faith and patience. Do you see that? Faith and patience. Those are the two things that we will do. So let's talk about that. Let's start with faith. Let's say that you are honestly saying in your heart, I am sluggish. I'm yawning on the couch. I'm not running the 100-yard sprint with love for God's name and serving of God's people. So if I'm sluggish, not earnest, what would it mean for me to have faith? How will faith help me? Okay? Here's what it would mean to have faith in that case. Here's what I would do. I would start by turning to Jesus Christ just as I am. Trusting him. Faith means trusting all that God promises to be to us in Christ Jesus. So I would turn to Jesus Christ, the living, resurrected Jesus, and I would say, Lord Jesus, I trust you to forgive me for my sluggishness, and I trust you to change me and set me free from sluggishness and give me earnestness. I would start by turning to Jesus just as I am. Don't don't try to overcome your earnestness or sluggishness on your own. Turn to him as you are. Faith. It starts with faith. It continues with faith. It ends with faith. It's all by faith. Sola fide. It's all faith. So we turn to Jesus and say, here I am, a slug. Okay? I'm trusting you, though. You can forgive a slug for sluggishness, and you can change me to be earnest. That's the first step. Turn to him as you are. You're just coming before Jesus looking to him, trusting him. And the second thing I would do would be to confess my sin to him. Lord, forgive me. I've I've been sluggish. Cleanse me. Forgive me through your death on the cross. And you would, by confessing that sin, you'd be assured that that sin is completely forgiven. You're clothed with Jesus' perfect righteousness. He's welcoming you, loving you. So first step is to come as you are. Second step is to confess your sin before him and be assured of forgiveness And the third step, again, you're you're trusting Jesus. I would say, Lord Jesus, increase upon me the work of your Holy Spirit to change my heart. I can't change my own heart. I mean, I could grit my teeth for maybe 10 minutes of earnestness, but it's not going to be real. I want my heart changed. Increase the work of your Holy Spirit upon me to give me earnest love for your name and passionate zeal to serve my brothers and sisters. Please, please. Bring this upon me by the work of the Spirit. Change my heart. Okay? (laughs) Then fourth, I would set my heart on verses in the Scripture because the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. So I would set my heart on passages in God's Word which show the beauty of His name, the beauty of who He is. Like like I I might read this passage that Cindy mentioned about Baal and, and Elijah, right? And the, the fire coming down and them all knowing. I mean, like read that and say, Lord, show me, help me to see and feel who you are here, your power, your authority, your supremacy. I might read about how he freed the people of Israel from Egypt with mighty signs and wonders. Read about all of Just see who God is in his sovereignty and his power in his mercy and his goodness. 
I read about the cross where he demonstrated his own love for us. He delivered his own son up for us. And read that and say, Father, open my eyes so I see the beauty of your name, the glory of your holiness here. I would read about the resurrection, this power of raising Jesus from the dead. So I would, I would open up the scriptures and I would pray over these scriptures asking Jesus to increase the work of the Spirit upon me until my love for God's name rises. And I see, I wasn't seeing before. I'm seeing, I'm feeling, I'm loving. And then, who can I serve? Who can I serve? See how that works? That is what the Lord Jesus will always do. Whenever you turn to him and you, see, we always bring nothing to the table. He's got everything on his table that we need. And we come by faith, trusting his mercy. I have nothing to bring. I just trust you. Help me. That's how, the li- how our lives begin in salvation. That's how they continue through salvation. That's how they end. That's what heaven's going to be like. We're just trusting Jesus to do and be everything for us that we need. And when you come to him in that way, he will never fail you. He will never fail you. He's never failed me in this. He promises. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. It's a promise. Okay, that's, that's faith. What about, what about patience? We're imitating those who inherit the promises through faith. Okay, we got that. And patience. Okay, what, what patience? What, what is patience? Patience means uh, Makrothumia is the, is, the, is the Hebrew word, which means long-suffering. It means enduring difficulties without giving up. It's patience, okay? Enduring difficulties without, without giving up. So we have faith, we're, we're coming to him, and what patience means is that we, we keep turning to him. We just keep turning to him. We keep turning to him when we feel like giving up. I'm going to turn to you again. I feel like giving up. I'm going to turn to you again. We keep turning to him when we're discouraged. I'm feeling totally discouraged. I'm going to keep turning to you, though. Faith and patience. I'm not going to give up. We keep turning to him when we feel far from God, which we all do at times. I'm feeling far from you. I'm not going to give up. I'm going to come and trust, ask you to meet me. We keep turning to him when we're tempted. right? So faith and patience, faith and steadfastness, faith and not giving up. We just keep turning to Jesus. We turn to Jesus. We turn to Jesus on Monday. We turn to Jesus on Tuesday. We turn to Jesus on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. We turn to Jesus at 6.30 Monday. We turn to Jesus at 11 o'clock Monday. We turn to Jesus at 3 o'clock Tuesday. Okay, we're just, we're just turning to Jesus. We turn to Jesus. We turn to Jesus. We're just looking to him. We're trusting him. We're living by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. And as we do that, Fighting the fight of faith, confessing, asking, reading, praying, he will again and again and again and again refresh us with love for God's name, which will overflow then in serving the brothers and sisters. That's how we obey verse 11. That's how we show the same earnestness. It's by imitating those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. That's what I want to call us to do. I mean, some of you look at your heart and you say, I'm sluggish. Uh, not really feeling much interest in serving my brothers and sisters. One or two that I like. I like to hang out with them. Nobody else, maybe. Okay. All right. Not much love for God. 
I want to call you. Be earnest by faith and patience. And he will birth this in your life. Let me tell you the story of Georgi Vins. Russia, a Russian pastor, 1965. Okay? The government was clamping down on believers, persecuting believers. Great suffering going on. And believers were peacefully protesting. Just civil disobedience, just protesting. This is wrong. Believers were standing out in public, just protesting. Government just cleared them out, threw them all in jail. And uh, the next day, Georgi Vins went to police headquarters. And he said he wanted to find out what's happening with the people that were arrested, the believers, because he's a believer, he cares about them. Just like Hebrews chapter 10, right? Radical, risky, sacrificial, serving of his brothers and sisters. He cared about them. He wanted to see how they were doing. They arrested him. Tried him. Served in a hard labor camp for three years. But listen to what he said at his trial, quote-unquote trial. You'll see what kind of love was moving him to serve in this way. He said, I consider myself fortunate to be able to stand here and testify that I am charged as a believer. This is fortunate for me. I'm honored to have this shame. I'm a believer. I do not see you as my enemies. When I leave the courtroom, I shall pray to God for you there in my cell, asking that he should reveal his divine truth to you and the great meaning of life. What was moving him to serve his brothers and sisters was his love for God's name. His love for God's name. And that's what will move you to serve your brothers and sisters. Mercy Hill Church, we want to form a, a countercultural community here of love. I mean, capital L, capital O, capital V, capital E, love. That when lost people watch us talk to each other and watch us serve each other and hear how we're caring for each other, they will know something God-like. There must be a God. Only being filled with a God-like joy could cause this level of love and care. We want to form a, a counter-cultural community of love here. Because Jesus promised that through that love, the world will know that he's from God. So I want to call you to this. Don't be sluggish anymore. Death to sluggishness. Okay, let's just go on the, on the war path against sluggishness. Imitate those who inherit the promises through faith and patience. Don't settle for sluggishness. Bring your heart to the Lord Jesus day after day, day after day. Pray, read, ask, see, feel. Love God's name and then serve each other's. He promises he will do this as we seek him. The love for God's name that will grow in your heart, the service that will be growing in our body here will bring great glory to his name. And that's what I want to call us to do. So let's stand. I want to pray this over us.
Father, we're all at different places. I need to work on this, and we all do in, in different ways. And we praise you, Jesus Christ, that you are a Savior. You don't ask us to save ourselves from sluggishness. Even in that, you ask us to come to you by faith, steadfast, persistent faith. And you will save us from sluggishness. So I pray, Lord, that this afternoon, tonight, this week, each of us would be coming before you as we are, confessing whatever we need to confess, asking for the work of your Holy Spirit to be upon us, opening up your word, the sword of the Spirit, and letting you do your heart surgery work inside of us. And then, Lord, that you would pour out afresh love for your name and that flowing from that would be serving of our brothers and sisters. Strengthen us in this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.